This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. All right, Hebrew, brothers and sisters, how are you? Good. Great, welcome to our study. Um, you know, when the, when the rain was coming down, I honestly thought we'd only get like a few people. So did I. Yeah. Uh, so t- tonight we're going to do this uh, simultaneous translation into Polish. Okay. Thank you. Great. So t- we are studying the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's technically the uh, the name, and the way we're doing that is by by reading through the Book of Acts, which has the uh, largest reference to the Holy Spirit in the entire canon, and uh, stopping and pausing whenever it's mentioned, and looking and seeing what he does, as well as the other cool things that are, that are there. Um, this is our sixth session, and so I've handed out some notes in session five. We will read them and go over them so that people who haven't been here much at least slowly catch up. We are halfway through chapter two, the uh, Feast of Pentecost. All right, so before we carry any further, what is the traditional thing we all do before having a, or doing anything in the Christian family? Pray. We pray. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to read your word and study it. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us into all truth and show us wondrous things out of your word. Amen. Amen. Okay, so going over that last week's discussion, we've begun reading Acts chapter 2. Acts is sacred history. It is the sacred history of how the gospel gets to Rome. It is not the sacred history of how the gospel goes to east or south or, or north. It records the events of Shavuot, Pentecost, in Jerusalem. The disciples continue to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit as promised by Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is a promise. It's also a gift. It's not a right. It's not something you earn. It's something you borrow. They continue to meet in the temple as noted by Luke's use of the word house in, in, in verse 2, not in the upper room as noted by most commentaries. So the disciples were gathering in the house. Habait in Hebrew would imply they were meeting in the temple, where, this, where the, the events of Acts chapter 2 occur. Exodus 20, 18 says, All the people saw the voices and the fires. Okay? Okay, they all, all the people saw the voices, plural, and they saw the fires, plural, when God spoke on Mount Sinai, which was at Shavuot, the giving of the Torah. Jewish commentary on Exodus 19, working on the verb to camp, okay, says that unity attracts the divine. And God came down to Mount Sinai only when Israel was united as a people. A Midrash describes how all the nations of the world heard the Torah, but only Israel accepted it. And when God spoke, fire proceeded from his mouth and dispersed into 70 tongues of fire, one for each of the 70 nations of the world, from Genesis 10. Acts chapter 2 demonstrates intimate knowledge of the oral traditions and commentary of the Jewish people. 
The disciples are said to be united in one accord. Every nation under heaven is said to be in Jerusalem. Tongues of fire appear. Voices are heard and seen. Subsequent to Shavuot in Exodus, we have the sin of the golden calf, in which 3,000 people are killed. Here in Acts 2, the number of the baptized is 3,000. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion parallel each other very closely, lending some credence to the orthodox position, that is, the, uh, the, all the orthodox traditions, Roman, uh, Russian, Ukrainian, Greek, Armenian, that Luke is actually Jewish from Antioch. Okay? That Luke is the Western tradition that places him as a Gentile, and it is the Eastern tradition that says, nope, this guy's Jewish. And uh, I would probably uh, align with the Acts 2 idea that this guy is very Jewish, and he knows a lot of Jewish traditions. We also noted that Rome has sent a delegation to Jerusalem. Thus, the church in Rome does indeed get started by Peter, just in Jerusalem. Arabs are also present, attracted to the monotheism of the Jewish people. Charged with drunken behavior, Peter defends the community, invoking the prophet Joel, particularly chapter 2. We note then that we are in the last days. The Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, males and females, Jews and Gentiles, young and old, uh, and that this will produce prophecy. Note, not the tongues of heaven, nor of a human language. That happens, but that's not what Joel prophesies. Thus Paul is correct in saying to Corinth, I wish you would all have the gift of prophecy, because according to Joel, the sign of the Spirit being poured out will be prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, after a discussion on the role of the literary prophet, that is, prophets who actually wrote material, that is, books like Isaiah and Joel and all those, they are literary prophets. There is another prophet, the prophet who doesn't write a book, like Elijah and Elisha and, uh, and Anna the prophetess and everybody else. The social prophet does not write material. They exist in the Hebrew Bible in schools, sometimes called the sons of the prophet or in Hebrew, B'nai Nevi'im. They exist in groups. Most often they're never seen alone. However, we note that Anna the prophetess in the temple is alone. We don't know how much detail or we don't know much of detail of their role or function within the community. This is something that the early church is going to have to deal with, and we will see how in uh, the teachings of the apostles known as the Didache, which we will read a little bit uh, today. Any questions over our material from last week? Alrighty, then let's go to pick it up from verse 22. So Acts 2, verse 22, we'll read to the end and, um, and, and do our best uh, to actually get there. So the way we do it is we go around verse by verse. And uh, I'll start and just keep going around, however it works. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, 
I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your holy one to seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. <coughs> but he was a prophet and knew that God promised him at home that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. God has raised this Yeshua to life. We are witnesses of the fact. The David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel recognize beyond all doubt and its knowledge, assuredly, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you and your children, for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord of God will call. With many other words, we warn them and cleared with them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Great. So. Just on an initial reading, is there anything there that jumps out at you? Or is there something there that you always see every time you read this passage? I swear sometimes new verses are added to my Bible. Uh, okay, sometimes I read and go, oh my gosh, I've never seen that before. I always found it interesting when it said, he, this is Jesus, has received the Holy Spirit. 
I'm thinking, hang on a second. Didn't he get that when he got baptized? He did, didn't he? Didn't he? Didn't he come down as a dove? Yes. Yeah. And yet, here we have this thing saying, he has received the Holy Spirit after he has ascended into heaven. Like, oh, okay. So one of the things I've been learning, especially as I've studied the book of Acts, you cannot outguess the Holy Spirit. We sometimes try and put him in a box and say, this is the way he works. This is what he does. If you do this, the Holy Spirit will do this. And then you'll have all these examples in the book of Acts where he will do completely the opposite. Sometimes, in the, as, we, as we study the book of Acts, he'll say, be baptized and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You go, great, good, seems like a formula. Baptized, and then the Holy Spirit comes. Excellent. A plus B equals C. But then a, a chapter later, they'll say, wow, these guys already have the Holy Spirit. Maybe we should baptize them. Yep. And so it actually comes before. And you go, wow, I can't outguess this guy. So he's always, uh, he's always surprising. Anything for you guys? All right. Then let's have a look at verse 22. Peter stands up giving his defense. He's in the temple. Okay, we've had the uh, the the earth-shattering noise, the wind. Uh, we've had the tongues of fire. Uh, we've begun to to sh to share the gospel in, in in tongues. It's been a replay of Mount Sinai here in Mount Zion uh, at exactly the same time. And he, he stands up, men of Israel. So who's he talking to? Men of Israel, okay. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a... Jew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was a man. Yes. Yes. Jewish man. A Jewish man, right? He was a man. And uh, many times, uh, not many times, but throughout history, some of our church <coughs> theologians have tried to take away the manness of Jesus and turn him into just be God. Okay. Um, but here you have Peter definitely standing up saying he was a man. And later on, we're going to make sure that his body, what type of body is it? Man's body. Yes. Does not see corruption. So the man's body is going to be raised to life. Which means that Jesus is a person. Yep. And um, that's one of those interesting theological quandaries that when Jesus became a man after he rose from the dead he was still a man and John the ba John the uh, the apostle when he looked into heaven said I saw the lamb as it had been slain it was slain as a man and in the uh, prophet Daniel he looked into heaven and he said who's going to break the seal and he saw the son of Man, Ben Adam in Hebrew, which also means human being. So one of, those, one of those very interesting cosmological pieces of theology is that our God decided to become a man and stay one. Which is a verse from Paul that says there is one... Um, what's the word he There's one... Mediator. Mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. That's right, and uh, and that and I remember hearing uh, a a a a sermon from a a guy from Calvary Chapel a long 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 time ago, who said, um, you know, when Jesus 
was in heaven and, and, and was making the choice to come down. Right? He's going to obey his father. That is also a choice. Disobey if he wanted to, but he did not. It was a case of, I'm going to have to change the form that I am now into something else and I can actually never go back. This isn't one of those things where Jesus goes, it's okay, I'll go down. It's only going to be 30 years or so. Don't worry, I'll live forever anyway. Um, and don't worry, I'll be resurrected and I'll be back just the way I was. So Jesus gave up something to buy us. Isn't that amazing? Do you think this is a substitution or an addition? Substitution or addition, what do you mean? Well, he gave up. He became a man. Did he leave what he was? Or did he add to what he was? Oh, that's a good theological question. Okay. Just, do you have the answer? <laughs> no, absolutely I do not. I only pretend I have the answers. Okay? I, I happen to know this. When Jesus rose from the dead, he still had scars. Right? And he didn't sort of go, oh, that was horrible. Not doing that again. Right? No, for whatever reason, they're still there. So what's the difference between a man and a glorified body? I don't know. Again, I don't know. Okay. Okay. But but uh, the glorified body of Jesus was what? His body. Right. And uh, he'd already had a taste of that on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is actually <laughs> next uh, Sunday. Oh yes, that's right. Next week is um, actually Ash Wednesday, so there will actually not be a Bible study because there'll be a service in the church. So. Okay. My, my apologies, but if you'd like to come to the Ash Wednesday service, you're more than welcome. Okay. So, th there was this man who, who, who was accredited by God through miracle signs and wonders. This is how God is proving to his people that Jesus is, is exactly who he says he is. And, as, uh, uh, as, as he says, as you know. So he's got this group of people sitting in the temple and there's absolutely no way Jesus had hidden from them. What did Jesus do in the temple that everybody knows? Right? He, whipped, he turned the tables over and he got people very upset. He challenged uh, the leadership. So everybody knows this guy. And uh, Peter can say, look, you, you yourselves know all about this man. We've never, never once hidden this. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It's an interesting way of using those words. So foreknowledge comes with what? Comes with purpose. It isn't just the idea of knowing what the end is from the beginning, but actually having a plan, which is an interesting concept to think of, yes? God's plan, right? And, uh, and what he is doing through Jesus the Messiah. And with the help of lawless men, who are the lawless in Jewish tradition? got a group of Jewish people standing in front of you, especially if you're in the temple, right? The holy, holy, uh, uh, the holy mountain of God, where God started creation. Who is a lawless person? Who doesn't have the Torah? The Gentiles, right? Okay. So, you know, with the help of the Gentiles, okay. So it's not just a the Jews killed Jesus idea. We all know that the Romans. Uh, did this, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And uh, when we think of the word cross, uh, what's the sort of style we think of? We think of, you know, this sort of large thing, okay? Uh, in, in, in Israel, crucifixion is done nailing to a tree, okay? 
and um, it's an olive tree. And so you'll see many times in the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, they'll say that Jesus was actually hung to a tree in a cross shape. That is true. Uh, but the, the, the sort of method of execution is you have a uh, most likely a olive tree, as is what you have lots of, and uh, they stand about sort of this tall before they branch out. You wrap your legs around the tree like this, and you drive a nail in each side, and then the tree has a groove in it. That's where you actually place the crossbeam. And so you hang, not sort of Cecil B. DeMille up there, but literally about a foot off the ground. Okay, so it's actually really personal. So Jesus, everything about Jesus is very personal. Um, and so when he's actually dying, he's actually at eye level. Right? It's not right, looking right at you while you do this. No nails in the heel wall? You would have a nail in, 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 in there, but uh, they would do their best to try and take the nails out. There's been one uh, archaeological discovery of in, in Jerusalem here of a crucified man with the nails still through his heel bone. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Because it got stuck. Because I the the iron nail is very expensive, especially in antiquity. So you certainly don't waste it on some criminal. So after they're dead, you pull the nail out and you reuse it. In fact, you you reuse the you reuse the whole thing. Yeah, you take the cross beam off. Put it on the next guy, and he carries that. Yeah, maybe because this nail that was in, it was discovered, was bent, hmm. so it hit something hard, and was now you know, couldn't couldn't pull it out. Yeah. All right, but God raised him from the dead, and that's the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is in one sentence? Messiah rose from the dead. That's what it is. You can they can come and they can take all these Bibles away from us. But at the end of the day, we can still say, Messiah rose from the dead. Yes. And because he did, I am too. Right? And, uh, and you, we almost don't even need these. I mean, we have them, and they're very precious. And you're not taking mine. Okay, but at the end of the day, that is the sentence that should be on our lips. Messiah rose from the dead. That is the good news that we can tell everybody. Freeing him from the agony of death. Right? What, is, what is death? For death, it was impossible for death to keep him. What is, what is death? I've, whatever it was, it wasn't part of the original creation. Yes. Right? And I don't think, none of us actually really actually kind of know what it is because none of us have ever had to do it. Um, the, the interesting thing about next week's uh, uh, reading, a uh, small hint for the sermon, is it's uh, the transfiguration. And who shows up at, at Jesus' transfiguration? Moses. Moses and Elijah. So what does that tell us about them? They're alive. They're not dead. <laughs> yeah, isn't that awesome? Right? They're actually alive. They've got some sort of body. They actually can talk. And if you can talk, what can you do? Everything. Breathe. <laughs> well, yes, you can also think and stuff. But you know, if you, if you can't breathe, you actually can't talk. Right? And, uh, and these guys can communicate, they can think, they can move, they can show up. They were, they even, they were, in Luke, it says they were discussing Jesus' exodus. They were, began to talk to Jesus about what was going to happen to him, saying, yeah, you're about to die. This was my experience, Lord, and uh, it wasn't that bad. You know? 
uh, or however it was. Okay. Elijah was kind of fun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elijah was like, well, actually, didn't die. I had a whole chariot. Would you like to borrow it, Lord? <laughs> that'll, that'll really surprise them in Jerusalem. Um, but it does mean that you have this thing called life, which we're living, and then there's this thing called death, and then there's this thing on the other side called life. Right? But we all have to somehow go through this thing called death, whatever it is. But, and, and most people can't get back the other way. But in, in our case, it was impossible for this thing called death to, to stop him. And then we have this, um, this prophecy from David uh, about him where we quote a psalm. Now, what's interesting about that for you guys? Is there anything interesting about that for you guys? What is a psalm? Sorry? A song. A song? Yep. Yep, it's a book of songs. So, okay, tefillah. It's not Torah. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not Torah. Okay, that's actually something different. And what else is it not part of? It's not part of the prophets. But in the New Testament, they are. Right? In the, in the, in the Second Temple period, even though they are prayers, now from the verb lehit palel, Psalms were also um, prophecies. In fact, they found prophecies in just about everything. Right? So even, even though we the way we read the book of Psalms might not even be as a, as a prophecy, but definitely in the, in the Second Temple period and definitely for the disciples they did. But as I think, is it this text? It actually says that David was a prophet. Yes. So David says, I saw the Lord always before me because he was at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And this is this, the way Peter is taking a prayer and using it as in, a, in a prophetic term to talk about the Holy One, the Messiah. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. I have a question. Yes. How do you think, what did David think? When he was writing, oh, if it was David who wrote this psalm. Okay. So the question is, what would what was David thinking when he wrote the psalm? Um, that's an easy answer. I have no idea, <laughs> and I'm going to bet none of us do either. However, David wrote many of them, many psalms, more than we actually have, and we've even found other ones, which is always interesting when you find other psalms in, in uh, out of the ground and then go, oh, uh, what do we do with this? Do we add it to the Bible now? Uh, no. <laughs> but there are, there are a few more. Um, the the Psalms are, are, are a very interesting thing. They're, they're prayers. And uh, what, what was David creating a, a prayer when he wrote a song? Not 100% sure. He didn't write them all anyway. Uh, many of the Psalms cover emotions that aren't actually all that pleasant. Some Psalms are sad. And they and they don't end at all well. Yes. Like they just they just they start bad. They get to the middle and they're bad. And then they finish and they're bad. 
Yes. And you go, oh my gosh, what is this doing in the Bible? It's terrible. In particular, it's Psalm 88. It's like that. Psalm 88 is, yes, very much like that. That all, all my friends will desert me. Mm-hmm. You've pushed me down into the pit. Darkness is washing over me. You've smashed me with your plagues. Um, I, have no, I have no hope. Uh, and you go, oh my gosh, that's it? Where's the... But you, Lord, will raise me up to life. And, and we don't get any of that. But God... You need to read the whole Bible. Well, of course. <laughs> and, 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 and that's one answer. Yes, and that's a good answer. And I think, and I think to, to, to make it even, even more grassroots, more, more low, is to say that um, God is emotional. How do I know that God's emotional? Because God made me and I'm emotional. <laughs> right? I'm made in His image. And uh, He gets jealous. He gets angry. He falls in love. Right? Uh, he laughs. He weeps. He does all these things. He's in more control of his emotions than I am. Right? Uh, and so he says, Aaron, you know, I know you're sad. And when you're sad, you need to pray a sad prayer. Here, I've got one for you. Pray this one. Tell me how sad you are. I will come and I will weep with you. Weep with those who are weeping. Laugh with those who are laughing. It's, it, sometimes we think that if we're Christians, we have to have the joy of our salvation all the time. You know, and sometimes we come to people who are sad and say, right, guess I'm going to make you feel good today. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we probably should just say, OK, you're not feeling too crash hot. There's some really good psalms for us right now. God knows exactly how we're feeling. The good thing about the sad psalms is, like you said, they're not the only one. Mm-hmm. One day there'll be happy psalms to read. This psalm in particular, Psalm 88, that you quoted from um, I've heard people who minister in hospitals or to severely depressed people and people who are locked in. And it's this song in particular that really speaks to them. There's no, you know, that, that, um, it's honest about how bad stuff gets. And it really connects with these kind of people. And it's, it's marvelous to see it's there. But then when you go to Psalm 89, the next one this is completely uplifting. Um, but it, it is interesting that the Lord has put one psalm in place that has that characteristic and speaks to certain people in a really dark place. In verse 29, uh, Peter, in addressing his fellow men of Israel, says the word brothers, right? Adelphu in Greek or Achim in Hebrew. When you say brothers, who do you mean? If you're Jewish. Well, yes. Achim, in, in Hebrew, uh, male plurals actually include females. Right? That's, 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 the way, that's the way it works. Like, if you have a group of people and you have males and females inside, you actually call the group male. Okay? Uh, if they're all females, then you can actually call the group female. But that's the way it works. In, in, and Hebrew is not the only language that does that. Okay? Before anyone wants to get sexist or whatever. Okay? Yeah, oh, is that right? <laughs> But let's go back into the second demo period, okay, Achim. And, uh, and so who are the brothers in Jewish thought in the second temple period? They are Jews. And the New Testament always uses the word brothers to mean just Jews. Until Acts 15. Once you get to Acts 15, whenever we see the word brothers, it's actually going to be referencing Jews and Gentiles. They'll be talking to Jews and Gentiles, and they'll start calling them brothers too. So what happened 
at Acts 15 that makes the switch? No. It was the meeting. And what's the meeting in Jerusalem? What do they say? Do Gentiles have to become Jews to believe in the Messiah? And what was the answer? No, they don't. They are accepted. And so all of a sudden, the language switches. They are indeed our brothers. But at the moment, we've got a, we're in the temple talking to Jews here. And, uh, and so the term brothers is referring just, just to them. Okay? I can tell you confidently that our patriarch, okay, the Avot, David, he died and he was buried and his tomb is here to this day. Where's David's tomb, guys? Okay, it is not the upper room, just so everybody knows. Okay? The, uh, the, the, uh, the tomb that's actually in the upper room, uh, in David's tomb, is a, is a 12th century crusader knight. And I'm sure he's, he's being lovingly guarded by the Orthodox. Okay? And uh, I'm sure he can't wait to tell them when they get to heaven. So I really appreciate what you guys did. David's tomb has been discovered by archaeologists. And they are not announcing where it is. But you can go and see it anytime you like. It doesn't have a sign on it. Okay? It's in the city of David. And uh, the reason why they are not announcing it is be then the Orthodox will have to give this one back. And of course, this is the Middle East, okay? and you never let a fact get in the way of a good tradition. Okay? So, so we have. But these guys knew where David's tomb was, right? You know, this is this, this is a thousand years. David has been dead one thousand years, and here they are saying um, his tomb is here to this day. We know exactly where that is. So, was it within the walls or outside the walls? It was within the walls. So what had happened over time, normally tombs are outside the walls, and then as the city expanded, tombs actually began to appear inside the walls, and they would begin to cordon them off so that they could, because a tomb is a, has a dead thing in it, and dead should never be part of the people of God who are life, right? They have to reflect God's character. But, uh, and that's what happened to what we today call the Holy Sepulchre. It's got tombs in it. And they have now encroached into, into the thing, the Bible Hill. Anyone know where the Hotel Mount Zion is? It's full of tombs, okay? But the city just kept expanding. And that's one of the reasons why they don't build on top of it. Because um, it's, it's actually a cemetery, okay? Um, okay, so what does verse 30 say about our friend David? He was a prophet. Isn't that interesting? What else was he? King. He's a king. But here, we don't call him king, like we haven't called him king or book yet. We call him prophet. And various of the patriarchs were all prophets. So who are the three prophets who led the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses. Aaron. Miriam, right? She's actually called a prophet. And what was her special gift? Anyone remember? Singing, yeah? She had a very special gift. She could find water. Because that's her name. Miriam, right? Meh, from there, is water. And when she died, 
the very next sentence is Miriam died and there was no water for Israel. Right? So that's her was her special special ability according to tradition. But King David is also a prophet. Okay? And he also prophesies. Who else was a prophet in the Bible? King Saul. Okay? Yes, a lot of these guys sat around and, and, and did prophecies. All right. I just had a note on this thing about Psalms being prophecy. It's really helpful that at the end of Luke's Gospel, in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus says this about himself. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms mm -hmm. must be fulfilled. So it's good. That's the only place in the New Testament you get those three mentioned. And he says there were things in the Psalms that have to be fulfilled. Therefore, by definition, that prophecy. Yep. Excellent. So he had promised on oath that he would be placed one of his descendants on the throne. We understand, of course, that Jesus is the Messiah of the, the line from David. Seeing what is ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned, and his body, his body, right, did not see decay. So he has his body back. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Which is very interesting for me, because I'm 100% sure he got it at his baptism. And the, the, the disciples, when did they receive the Holy Spirit? He breathes on them, and then they have to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be baptized in the Spirit. And so you can have the Holy Spirit and you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit and you can be full of the Holy Spirit. So you said, excuse me, that they got the Holy Spirit when he blew on them. Yes, John 20, okay. Jesus says to them, receive the Holy Spirit and he breathes on them. So if he says that, what are they getting? Holy Spirit. And then in Acts, Jesus says, now you wait here in Jerusalem so you can get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Like, hang on a second, didn't we already get that? And, uh, and so, and Jesus himself got it, yes, at, the, uh, at, his, at his baptism. Yes. The Holy Spirit came and, 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 and alighted on him. And, and he had the Spirit without measure. So then when he gets to the Father, what is he getting? The Holy Spirit. How? I do not know. Okay? It's just that do not try and put the Holy Spirit in a box. Right? He, uh, he, he is an, uh, an amazing person who can do <coughs> truly amazing things. Oh. Sir? Can you put any spirit in a box? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, for David, who, who did not ascend to heaven, has said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies a footstool. Again, he uses... The prophets, uh, the Psalms as a, as, a, as a prophecy. Therefore, all Israel will be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Adon and Mashiach, okay? Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, which is a very Jewish thing to say. Where, where does God require us to write our laws? Heart. It's always been about the heart. So this is exactly where they cut. They're not cut to their spirits. They're not chastised in their minds. Okay? Their hearts were rent, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. And uh, so we have this idea of the heart. 
And what do they say? What shall we do? What shall we do? So they're cut to the heart, but now they want to do something. And in Jewish tradition, these two are linked. Always. Psalm 24. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Clean hands and clean heart. And, uh, and, and you're always going to find things like that. When, 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 you, when something happens to your heart, usually the very first thing that comes out of people's mouths in the Bible is now what do I have to do? Right? Not what do I have to believe? Yes. You know, uh, what, how do I circumcise my heart? Like what, is it, what does it physically have to now have to physically do? Okay. And um, what do we do? What does Peter say? Repent. Okay, repent. And where do you do that? In your heart. What else does he say? And how do you do that? You physically do it. Okay. So their hearts are rent. Now they want to know what to do. Peter says, well, you're going to have to repent and then you're going to have to get baptized. Okay. So you're going to always do both. Faith without works is? Empty. Right? Empty. And that's the, those, those um, in Jewish tradition, there is absolutely no tension between faith and an action. In the Protestant world, we, we got stuck with uh, not being able to uh, meld the two together very well. And that was because of what was going on at the time of the Reformation. We had, we had, we had swung so heavily into this, we had forgotten about the heart. Okay? And, and so here you, you actually see this uh, nice little um, uh, codependence on the heart and action. Repent, be baptized. But he stresses that they have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Yes. Christ, yes, yes, yes. Which would be different from John the Baptist. Yes, very different from John the Baptist. Baptism is a very Jewish thing, so they're all used to this idea of being baptized. Yeah. None of them are shocked by it. None of them are asking, what does it mean? They're just asking, uh, how do we actually physically do it? We do it in the name of. When someone says, I do this in the name of, what does that mean? On behalf of. On behalf of. With the authority of? A mandate, I'm commanded to. It's also a loyalty. And when someone says in the name of Jesus, uh, that's not a magical formula. Where I'll just, you know, dear Lord, uh, please give me a motorcycle in the name of Jesus. And suddenly, woo, magic. Okay, and now I suddenly get myself a bike. Okay. Uh, in, when someone says in the name of, in the Second Temple period, lots of people were, were saying that. In, you go through Jewish literature, it says, Rabbi so-and-so said in the name of Rabbi Hillel. Ra uh, Saul said in the name of Gamaliel. And so that was in the, in the authority of, loyalty to, on behalf of, uh, representing like, that's what... Not, not a, a magical formula. So when we say in the name of Jesus, we'd better be sure what we're asking. So, so I have loyalty to God, now give me a car. <laughs> it doesn't quite fit the, the hard intention. Okay? But here, uh, what have we got? Repent. Where does repentance come from? Where's this idea to repent? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, in Leviticus, 
the, mo the majority of the sacrifices that we find in Leviticus are for unintentional sin. There's actually not a sacrifice for intentional sin. Where you say, oh, I've robbed a bank. I shall now go kill a goat. And all shall be well with me. Okay? Actually, when you read Leviticus, it says, when you discover some intentional sin, go kill a goat. Like, ooh. Okay? And so, but how do I get rid of my intentional sin? Leviticus doesn't say. And so, the oral traditions, of which we can know that there's a lot of, okay, they said, oh my gosh, well, how, how does God really want us to say we're sorry? Repent. Repent. You've got to do it from the heart. You have to repent. And so, it's a Jewish tradition. And so, they began to say, wow, repentance must be incredibly powerful. I mean, the, 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 the types of sins you can say sorry for are, are just amazing. So they say that they have a tradition. Again, just a tradition. Never let a fact get in the way of a good, you know, uh, tradition. Seven things were created before the creation of the world. Anyone heard this tradition before? Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a midrash. It's a discussion. They'll say before God started creation, there were seven things that God created before the world. And oddly enough, okay, they actually have a Bible verse to prove every single one of them. Okay, yes, so next time we meet, I will write them out, I promise. And I will write the Bible verses for you to say, this is where they come from. They say that in the, before God started creation, He created heaven and earth. Uh, he created the throne of glory. He created uh, the Garden of Eden. He created the name of the Messiah. He created hell and he created repentance. Oh, sorry, sorry, the Torah and the repentance. Okay, so they, they, and you go, oh my gosh, out of all these other great cosmological things, including the Messiah who was there before the creation of the world, yeah. right? There was this thing called repentance. And I say, that's so powerful. So here, they're cut to the heart. They've seen something very amazing. They've heard languages. What do we need to do? We need to repent, boys. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus the Messiah, for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. All right. So it's the um, it's heaven and hell, uh, the Garden of Eden, the throne of glory, um, the Torah, the name of the Messiah. What else have I got? Repentance. The repentance. Yes. And Torah. And Torah. And the first one is heaven and earth. Yeah, so heaven, heaven, heaven earth, hell, that, that sort of thing. I can't remember whether those are two or three. But I'll find the last for you. And, uh, and what they do is they go through the Bible and they find a verse that shows us that each of those was existed before. Using, usually, often using the word uh, mikedem or uh, something like that. Okay. And I will ask the eighth thing. Sorry. The eighth? Yes, the waters. Because there was a spirit hovering over the waters. Okay. Well, they 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 would say even before that. Okay. Even but, before yeah. the waters. It's their their little tradition. Seven seven's a special number for Jewish people, so they definitely made sure there were seven. Okay. Okay. So you you get you you get baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, the Holy Spirit is a gift. Gift. Right? In this case, you get it because you get baptized and because you repent, 
right? So the Holy Spirit can come comes with these things, repentance uh, and, and being baptized. But it is a gift, not a right, not something you earn, not something you buy, not something you borrow. And, and, and it's most definitely, I'll say it again, it's not a right where someone says, I'm a follower of the Lord, so he's just going to have to give me the Spirit. Just <coughs> It's a gift from the Lord. So the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Well, who would be the far off people? Yeah, the Gentiles. Okay. How far away were the Gentiles at this stage? New Zealand. No. <laughs> they were about five meters away. Okay, they have a court of the Gentiles, right? Right. So the Gentiles are actually just like there. Okay. And um, and on, and there was a wall separating these guys. Right. And uh, which which Paul will talk about later that the wall of separation has been been taken down. Okay. And uh, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So these, these, these Gentiles who will be drawn to the Lord because he is, he, is, he is doing the drawing. And with many other words, he warns them, he pleads with them, save yourselves from the corrupt generation. Who's the corrupt generation? We. Yeah, okay, we are. Okay. But in their case, it's actually a self-criticism. Sometimes the best people to criticize are actually ourselves. Yes. And so he's looking at their own situation and he knows it's corrupt. We, what's corrupt about the Jewish culture in the Second Temple period? Priesthood. The priesthood was completely corrupt. Okay? It had been changed, it had been changed during, by the Maccabees. The high priest was now no longer of the line of Zadok. He had been changed to, to, to be bought or sold. Many of the priests were not Levites or Cohens anymore. They were part of the Hasmonean family. It was completely non-biblical. So Jesus was very upset when he, when he, when he whipped it out. Um, the Romans are corrupt. There are, there are Jews who are working with the Romans. They're corrupt. Um, the, there, are, there are the Pharisees and Sadducees and the tension between the religious leadership. They were arguing about each other and not actually caring for the poor people anymore. So they've sort of lost the plot. And so he's actually being very self-critical. It's like, guys, we've got, it. We've, got it. we've got to change this. We've got to say, say the current situation is not working. It's not going to work. But in the Messiah, it, it, it can and will work. And then we get this idea that 3,000 people are, are saved, which is exactly the same number as you see in Exodus who die at the sin of the golden cow. So God fixes things up. In Jewish tradition, beginnings and ends always occur in the same spot. Okay. And they, uh, heroes are born and die on the same day. Okay. Creation and the, of the world and the end of the world occur in the same spot. Uh, all these things uh, are constantly uh, in motion that way. So 3,000 people die, 3,000 people get, get baptized. So in, in, in Exodus, at the golden cow, right? it says that 3,000 people die. So that is, um, that's uh, Pentecost in, in Shavuot. So now we have Pentecost again. Okay. Can I ask you a question about the gift of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Uh, it says you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which sounds very much like a promise. And I was wondering, it is a promise. Yeah. So are there any Christians who have not received the Holy Spirit? I would say no, but so I this, might be wrong. So this is a special kind of a gift. It's yeah. not a, you know, a, a gift ordinarily we think of as it's something you didn't ask for. And 
somebody just gives something to you, but this is a special kind. Because it's a promise. Yeah, it's like, um, come over to my house and, uh, and I'll give you a chocolate. Okay? You get the, you'll, it's, you, uh, well, whenever you want. <laughs> okay. First, I'll have to steal the chocolate from my daughter. Okay? Uh, and then you can have one. Okay. So they devoted themselves to the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. reference to this 3,000 people in Exodus. It's, um, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 3, it says, And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Thanks. Okay, so now we come to the, my favorite bit of Acts chapter 2. I mean, it's all pretty good so far. Um, it's, it's this little bit, which I get to a little title called The Fellowship of the Believers. Right? And uh, I've lived in this country for 20 years, and many people come along and they say, Aaron, you know, I really want to be like the first century church. And then I go, oh, I don't think you do. Yeah, yeah, no, I really do. Okay. Let's have a look at them. Right? So here we have our believers, and uh, and there and there's now quite a lot of them. Okay, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Anyone see an issue with that? Yeah. Who are the apostles? I mean, yes. Who are now the apostles? Okay, but okay. Who are the apostles? What are they teaching? And why aren't you hanging out with the teaching of Jesus? <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, that to me, remember, in, 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 uh, in Jewish tradition, it's not only what is written that's important. What's also important is what's not written. And so wouldn't you normally expect to say the disciples gathered and they gathered around the words of Jesus and they read each other the gospel and they talked about what Jesus said and they tried to mimic Jesus. But actually what we get is they, these are the disciples, they gathered around and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yeah. Well, what are they teaching? Well, I think the element was they're relying on these as wise witnesses. So we understand Jesus didn't write, write very much apart from talking in the sand. Um, and if you want to know what he said, it's an oral community, therefore we have to ask the eyewitnesses. And that's what apostles were by definition. So there is a book that used to be in the Bible called the Didache. Anyone ever heard of it? Excellent. It's a really cool book. Uh, apparently collected and, 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 and uh, finally finished off around the same time as Revelation. Uh, was it? Sorry? The same time as? Revelation. Okay. Uh, Okay, didache is actually the um, Greek word for teaching, or if you speak Greek, didache. It's a bit softer. Um, the actual full full title of the book is the teaching of the apostles to the Gentiles, and uh, which is very interesting, as some of the references in the teaching are going to mention. I'll read a few. So it actually looked like it was also to to Jews, and. Um, uh, and for the first nearly 300 years, it was actually considered canon. So if we had actually been Christians in the year 261, uh, this would have been part of our Bible, and part of our, our tradition. And so if we would like to know what the early church looked like, then read that. And I'll read some of it. It is free on the Internet. Okay. Yes. 
I just printed one off and downloaded it. Uh, next week I'll just include a few little snippets. Uh, this is a, one example. Uh, and it says, and these are our teachings. And it, and it mimics something very similar to Matthew. Bless those who curse you, pray for your enemies, fast for your persecutors. Right? Isn't that interesting? Right? So bless your enemies and fast. Okay? Anyone want to do that? That's what the early church was doing. You know? Say, so, oh my gosh, they're beating us up. We shall fast for them. Interesting. Do you expect a great reward if you only love those who love you? Do the Gentiles not conduct themselves accordingly? So if this is written to Gentiles, it would be an interesting sentence to have just said. Okay. Um, what would be another good one? Uh, this is the second commandment of our teaching. You must not murder, nor be given to adultery. Don't molest children. Don't practice immorality. Don't, uh, nor theft. Don't be a practitioner of black magic or witchcraft or a terminator of unborn children. Is that? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so imagine what was going on in the, in the, in the first century where the believers were saying, okay, this is not what our community does. Okay, magic, yeah, we get it. Murder, yeah, we get it. Okay, nor any sort of infant side. Okay, the killing of children. Okay, um, what else? Uh, that's another good one. Okay, uh, here's a, here's a uh, my child, do not lie because lying leads to theft. Do not accumulate selfish wealth. Okay, so they're not against wealth. Like the sort of idea that, well, you know, the early church, they all just lived on a big kibbutz and they sold everything and, uh, you know, and gee, this whole idea of, of, of us all having our own property, that's just anathema to the early church. Not true. Okay? What they were saying is, we're not opposed to wealth because all of the avot were wealthy. All of the patriarchs were wealthy. Abraham ain't poor. David ain't poor. Okay. Uh, the, the, the Jacob's not poor Isaac's not poor they're all, well, all wealthy but don't get your wealth selfishly which means what do you have to do with your wealth share it okay so you know you can go and create wealth but you must share okay um, rather be meek for you will inherit the land of promise which is an interesting take from uh, Matthew, where he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. earth. Well, the land, the word there in Greek could mean earth, but it could also mean land. And if you're Hebrew and you say the word aretz, what do you mean? You mean the land of Israel. Okay. So there is a, was a small group who actually said, you know, if, we, if, we're, if, we're, if we're meek, we'll actually get Israel back. Um, you must daily seek the companionship of the saints so that you may find support in their words. Right? So this sort of injunction of, if you become part of our community, what should you do? You should go hang out with the community. Go find some believers, go talk to them. Okay? Do not hesitate to give nor grumble afterwards, for one day you will face the reward of the paymaster. Right? Be generous. Never neglect your responsibilities concerning your son and daughter, but always teach them from their youth proper respect. In the assembly, you should confess your transgressions and be careful to never approach your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. 
So we understand from the early community that every time they gathered together, they confessed. And so you find in traditional churches that every single liturgy has a confession in it. And some people come along and go, oh, this is really boring. Why do we have to do that? Because actually what the early church was doing. Right? The early church gathered together and said, well, let me tell you how I blew it today and, and why I'm going to say sorry. Okay? I think there's a lovely uh, example or a picture of that that Jesus gives when he washes the disciples' feet. And Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to do this for me. Jesus says, unless I do it, you will not be clean. And, but then Peter says, but wash my whole body. He says, no, 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 you don't need to completely wash because you're already clean. It's just those extremities, your hands and your feet that have been soiled by contact with the world. That's the kind of thing that you need to be clean. So when we come into fellowship and we want to confess, it's just the stuff about being, living in the world, ha ha and having within us a frail and, and nature that is going to fall. But it's not an, from the start, you know, um, a priori uh, repentance. It's just dealing with the accumulation of the day's failings and yeah, our, our weakness. So it's this idea of the difference between a bath and just washing your hands and feet. Okay. All right. Um, concerning food, food was a big issue for the early community. Okay. Because as the early community is mixing in with Gentiles, what do Gentiles eat? Oh. Yeah, they eat non-kosher food. <laughs> well, we've got a real problem, especially if you're Jewish. How, how do I, how do I have table fellowship with my new brothers and sisters? Okay. And so. This one says, and concerning food, eat what is right, but guard that you never eat that which is sacrificed to idols, for that is recognized as worship of the dead. Right? So this, there was a, a strong prohibition against uh, eating food that was sacrificed to another god, which in our context is what type of food? <coughs> Halal. Okay, we have this issue in our current day-to-day, -day, and we as believers, we tend to ignore it completely. But the early church would have taken this very seriously. Okay, is that uh, you do not eat food that is offered to another god. Right? That is a form of idolatry. Baptism. All right, because we're definitely going to make sure that we sort of baptize is a big thing. So they have, um, concerning baptism, baptize this way. After reviewing all this teaching, which is... Uh, so far, we've had in this things like six chapters of this stuff. I just read a little bit. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in living or running water. That's a very Jewish tradition. But if living water is not available, then baptize in other water. And cold is preferred, but if not, you can use warm. Okay? Don't you love it? Okay. But if neither is available, just pour three times over the head, okay? <laughs> Yeah, that's what it says. Except the okay bit. Okay. It says, pour three times water on the head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the overseer fast, and also the one being baptized. Wow. That would be older. The overseer, right? Is, you know, so that's like... It's the bishop. It's the bishop. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to... Bishop, we're going to baptize a bunch of people. Oh, I was going out to dinner today. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> okay. But yes, so the, the, the role of the early church was when you were bringing in new people, the, the community fasted. Like your sponsor would come up and say, brother, you know, I've walked with you in this journey and you're about to enter the family. So you fast and I'll fast too. 
And uh, so a lot of fasting was done in the early church, which, in case anybody noticed, is not actually taught and done much in our churches, if we're honest. Um, and, and all those who are able, be sure to instruct the one being baptized to fast one or two days before. Okay, so they sort of had at least a day fast, but, but sometimes more. So they had this idea that they would like to immerse in running water, but if they couldn't do that, then just any sort of water, preferably cold, but if they couldn't find cold, fresh out the tap is fine. And if that's still okay, you can pour a bucket of water on a guy's head. It doesn't matter. Okay, so it's very interesting how the early church did that, right? Uh, and then concerning fasting, because fasting was a really big deal. Be careful not to schedule a fast at the same times as the hypocrites. They fast on, the, on Mondays and Thursdays. <laughs> okay. Therefore, make your fasts on Wednesdays and the preparation day, Friday, because the day of preparation for the Sabbath. Okay. So the early church fasted two days a week. That's without having a fast for um, uh, a baptism. Okay. So could you imagine fasting definitely two days a week? That's what the early church did. You do that? Would they fast though from like a, um, with a Jewish date from the evening to the following evening as opposed to a... Good question. It doesn't say. I, I'm going to argue yes. And the reason I'm going to argue yes is because the mention of the word Sabbath here is that they would fast on the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. So they couldn't fast on Friday night because that would be the Sabbath. And why, why did they choose uh, Wednesday as the second day? They, 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 they decided that what they're saying is don't do your fasts like the other guys. So there was another community that was... Tuesday. Yes. They were fasting... On Mondays and Thursdays. Yeah, but they chose Wednesday. Yeah, so whatever it was. Wednesday was the day of Jesus' Could be. Could be. It's not, not listed here, but just, it just shows us that the early church had a schedule and, uh, and did stuff like this. And they said, likewise, don't pray like the hypocrites, but, but as the gospel has commanded us, and then you get the Lord's Prayer. And uh, then there is a, um, uh, a very detailed uh, service order for communion. It lists, um, uh, concerning the cup, we'd like to thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, whom you have made known to us through your servant. May the glory be yours forever. And so it's interesting that they would use that terminology. Okay. Uh, and then um, after the meal, there is again a long, a long uh, uh, thanksgiving. And then it says that after communion, it says, permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as they wish. What does that tell us? Okay, so... They, 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 have a, they have a thing called communion, and they're quite a detail. It's, it's actually two chapters long of all the different prayers and, and, and sort of where you do it and, and the prayers afterwards. And then it says, after you have, been, have said your prayers of thanksgiving, there's this little line that says, now permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as they wish. So you have a liturgical prayer. Now, after we've said our liturgical prayers, let the prophets come and speak. Who are the prophets? Isn't that interesting? The early community believed that they had prophets in their midst. And why would they not? What have we been reading in Acts chapter 2? <coughs> Correct. Is that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all flesh and all will? Paul said, I wish you would all prophesy. But all that 
all that have the Holy Spirit or all that are baptized in the Holy Spirit? Oh, well, the, the Joel doesn't say that. All he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and they will prophesy. And is it all flesh like all the people? Yes, or? it's all flesh. It's Jews and Gentiles, males and females, old and young. And Very, slaves as and well. And slaves as well. Even That's the really even, But yes. no matter, yeah, but I'm asking if no matter they are Christians or not. Ah. This is my question, not, yeah. Okay, good question. Over to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Help me out here, people. <laughs> So the question, who's at, according to the prophet Joel, who's going to prophesy? All flesh. When will they do that? Um, do can, they do can it a non before? Prophesy? Can a non-Christian prophesy? Yes. The high priest prophesied that a, a man should die for the people. By virtue of his office, not because he was a good guy. Yeah. I mean, a, a donkey prophesied. Yeah. So, um, you know, some, sometimes, you know, the truth actually can be said in the, in the mouth of an evil person. If Adolf Hitler had stood up and said, there is a God, we would all go, yes, Mr. Hitler, you are 100% correct, and we're still going to bomb Dresden. Okay? Um, but it just depends. So anyway, uh, concerning the emissaries and the prophets, because now we've got these, these people called prophets in our midst. Who are they? What do they do? How do we recognize them? If, had, what, what, if the spirit of prophecy is going to exist in our community, what does it look like? How do you control it? You know, if the spirit is speaking through a human, what weight does that have vis-a-vis -vis the Bible? Same spirit, yes. Right? But, but we all know that you can't make more Bible. You cannot add to this book. So can you put the prophet in a box? Oh, so they're going to try. So here we go. This is how the early church dealt with it. Concerning the emissaries and the prophets, deal with them according to the decree of our teaching. Well, what is it? Here it is. Let every emissary, or uh, the word is apostle, shliach, okay, that comes to you be received. So when someone comes to you in the name of the Lord, what's our first response? Welcome, brother. Okay. But he must not remain longer than one day. Yes, unless it is absolutely necessary, in which case he may stay another day. But if he stays three days, suspect him as a false apostle, false prophet. Okay? So how, how did the early church guard against false prophets? The prophets were itinerant. They were itinerant. Okay. So they couldn't stay put to influence too much. Correct. They, you could, that's exactly right. The influence of a prophet... Couldn't, could, could, could be a maximum only a few days to a community. And just calling yourself a prophet was not a meal ticket. Yeah. Although lots of people would have tried that on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the early community had this idea of, oh my gosh, all these guys running around saying, thus saith the Lord. What do we do with this? All right. So when the emissary leaves, send him with only bread to sustain him till his next destination. Okay, so they're not going to make it rich, these boys. All right. But he, if he asks for money... Be assured, he is a false prophet. So, early church, they decided that if, a, if somebody came to your community and said, Thus saith the Lord, you need to buy me a new Mercedes. Okay? I need 45 million to buy a new plane for the gospel. And it's like, nope, false. Okay? That's how they would, would, uh, would do. do. Do not test or judge any prophet who speaks according to the Spirit, but be warned. Not everyone who speaks according to the Spirit 
is a prophet, but only those who walk in the Spirit. So you, you end up with both again. Okay. Their heart in the Spirit and their walk in the Spirit. Therefore, from their consistent behavior, you can discern a false prophet. So it's not just what comes out his mouth that you can test. What else can you test? His actions. In fact, that is exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be fruit inspectors and inspect the fruit of the Spirit. And every prophet who commands food to be brought to him in the Spirit will not eat from it unless he is a false prophet. <laughs> okay? Every prophet will teach the truth, but if he doesn't practice his own words, he should be regarded as a false prophet. And every prophet that is, that is proven they are in fact genuine, whose illustrations occasionally appear too worldly when teaching about the body of believers, yet he scrupulously does not teach others to copy his illustrations, shall not be judged negatively, for God will judge him. For his example came from the ancient prophets. Not 100% sure what all that meant. <laughs> but how did the ancient prophets behave? Some of them behaved pretty weird. Okay, they walked around naked, they married some prostitutes, okay, they dug little models and, you know, and played with their little toy tanks and stuff. And you go, oh, this guy's really weird, okay. But whoever says in the spirit, give me money or something similar, do not listen to, listen to him. But if he solicits that you give to the needy, none should judge him. So if someone comes and says, give me money, you shouldn't do it. But if someone says, you know, you really got to give him money, well, it's more likely... Okay, so the every true prophet who settles among you is deserving of his food. A true teacher is also worthy of his food. For this reason, store all the first fruits of your wine, cattle, grain, and sheep, and give these to the prophets, for they are your, like your high priests. So the community um, knew that there were these these people that would be moving around their community. As, as teachers, as prophets, as people who were bringing the Lord. They were never to stay long. They were never to ask for money. But at the same time, we would, as we, we as a community were bringing in our first fruits and to give them to the Lord, we would actually give them to the servants of the Lord. That's how they would, uh, would, would, would do it. We wouldn't go to the temple and say, you might still go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, but if we were in Asia Minor or something, we would prepare uh, these gifts for, for them. Okay. All right. And uh, what else can we say about the uh, the? Where did they take this out of the canon? Where did we what? Why did they take this out of the canon? I don't know. Not by um, the the way the way our Bible comes to be uh, is a many and varied uh, process. <laughs> And it goes through a series of councils, and not everyone agrees. And that is the reason why every single denomination has a different Bible. Okay? So as soon as we say the word Armenian, they have books that nobody else has. Okay, as soon as we say the word Coptic, Egyptian, they have books nobody else has. When we say the word Ethiopian, they have books nobody else has. Even, actually, the Ethiopian Jews have a different Bible than the rest of the Jewish people. Right? They're the only Jewish community that does. But in the Christian world, every community has a different Bible. Um, so it's not in our canon, but it was. Uh, 
So, but it is a, I commend it to you for good reading because it does show you how the early church behaved and, uh, and it gives us a hint, a little hint as to what the apostles were teaching. Large sections of it look like it's, it's uh, heavily borrowed from Matthew, meaning that the early church, had, the early apostles had obviously heard Jesus and were mimicking what Yeshua had said and passing that on to the community. And then they were dealing with new issues that were coming up. What can we eat? How can we eat it? How do we baptize people? How do we recognize these, these thing in our community called a prophet? What do we do when we get together and we have our bread and wine? Uh, how do we behave? What prayers do we pray? Uh, how do we appoint our leaders? Uh, a lot of that is, is all there. All right. Okay. Uh, so they devote themselves to the teachings of the apostles, to fellowship, okay, to the, to the habit of meeting together, of seeking out a believer and, and, and staying close. Uh, breaking of bread, okay, that is not, does not mean communion here, okay, that means fel fellowship meals. Okay, that means who wants to do coffee today, okay, okay, it's a, it's a good thing to do as a group. And to the prayers, okay, some translations just say prayer, but the actual word in Greek there is prayers. And when, 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 you, when you think of the prayers, what does it mean, the prayers? It means uh, liturgical prayer. The Didache mentions that you would pray three times a day. Why would they pray three times a day? Because that's what they did in the temple. Okay, so they were mimicking uh, temple life. And, uh, and so the early believers stuck to that uh, tradition too. Everyone was filled with awe. Wonders, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Why not the rest of the disciples? Maybe they were being done by the rest of the disciples. But for whatever reason, our reflection of sacred history gives it to these 12. Okay. Don't know why. I can't tell you why. All I can tell you is that our reflection of sacred history says the signs, the miracles were done by the apostles. Yet we know that the Holy Spirit fell on all 120 of them. And that includes Mary. Right? That includes Joanna, Gamaliel's uh, granddaughter. That includes Lazarus right? and Nathaniel, all the other guys that weren't mentioned. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. So what does it mean that they sold, or that sell, sold their possessions and goods? Does that mean they sold everything? That's right, it doesn't say everything. It means that as soon as they knew that someone had a need, what would they do? Right, they would, cover, they would make sure they would cover the need. It doesn't mean that they all went, oh my gosh, and they formed a kibbutz. Right? It doesn't mean they all suddenly woke up and went, socialism is the best thing possible. We will sell everything and make sure that everybody has exactly the same. No, they made sure that everyone's need were met. And there is a big difference. Okay? And, that, and that's got to be our, our uh, burden too. We must look at our community and we must be, be, be mindful of everyone's needs and then jump to the assistance when someone hasn't got it. Right? That's the reflection that our sacred history is teaching us, is that uh, this is what the early believers did, and they leapt into action. Okay. 
Uh, every day they continued to meet together where? In the temple. Very important place. All right. And uh, they broke bread in their homes, ate together. They were glad. They praised the Lord and they had favor with all the people. And so we can see that the early community is very much a part of the system. It's very much, it's, 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 uh, it's in public. Uh, it's beginning to get itself ordered. Uh, it has a hierarchical structure. Uh, and, it's, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's looking out, it's very practical. It's also practically looking after people's needs. So at the end of chapter two, everything looks like it's going swimmingly. Then, then um, and then we're going to start some trouble. Okay, then, then, then the, uh, the persecutions will begin to break out. But at least up until this stage, we have a, a very a flourishing community. Aaron, I find it interesting that it says that they're on the temple. So in fact, this is a kind of a public place. Mm -hmm. um, so they're conducting their services where people can be around the edge looking on and, and you know, asking questions in English. Kind of yep. And, uh, that's, that's, that naturally gives the opportunity for people to come in and see what it and witness and want to be part of it. There were no walls. Yep. So, and there may have been several thousand, you know, a yep. thousand or two. You know, the three thousand start with, and if they're getting added to every day, then and they're meeting today in the temple, it could be big numbers. Yep. But yep. it's interesting, you know, the precedent of not having walls to your your services. Yep. Uh, so a lot of the revival that have broken out in the church through the ages, where did they end up doing their meetings? Yeah, outside. Okay, so it's very interesting how that would, would work. Is that um, it's time to have a revival. Let's get the heck out of Dodge here and go outside. And um, maybe we should do that again. Yeah. Maybe not right now. Okay. Because it does say they met in people's homes. So that's good too. Okay. So, okay, guys, we will break there. Uh, next week is Ash Wednesday, so we will not have a Bible study. We'll have a service, and then we'll pick it up again uh, in, in Acts 3. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.